You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. This is a reading of a cycle of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled A Modern Art of Education. Lecture 2 is entitled The Principles of Greek Education, given on August 6, 1923. There is no question that education is on the mind of every soul today. We can see it everywhere. And if we advocate an art of education taken directly from spiritual life and perception, it is, in, it is its inner nature that distinguishes it from the reforms generally demanded today, not the urgency of its outward appeal. There is a widespread feeling that the conditions of civilization are in rapid transition, and that for the sake of society we must heed the many recent changes and developments. There is a growing feeling that children today are very different from those of the recent past, and that it is becoming increasingly difficult for older people to reach an understanding with young people than it was in earlier times. The art of education I will speak of, however, is concerned, instead, with the inner development of human civilization. It is more concerned with what has changed the souls of men and women through the ages, it is concerned with the evolution through which these souls have passed over hundreds, even thousands of years. We will attempt to explore the ways in which, in this particular age, we can reach the human being living within the child. It is generally acknowledged that the successive periods in nature can be differentiated. Just consider the way we take these differentiations into account in daily life. Take an immediate example, the day itself. Our relationship to natural processes changes from morning, noon, and night, and we would think it absurd to ignore the flow of the day. And we would also consider it absurd not to pay attention, sufficient attention to the development revealed in human life itself, to ignore, for example, the fact that an older person's needs are different from those of a child. In the case of nature, we respect this fact of development, but we have not gotten used to respecting the fact of the general human evolution. We do not consider the fact that centuries ago human beings were very different from those of the Middle Ages or today. We must come to understand the inner forces of human beings before our treatment of children can become practical and not merely theoretical. We must investigate inwardly the ruling forces in human beings today. The principles of Waldorf education, as it may be called, are thus in no way revolutionary. Waldorf education fully recognizes all that is great and noteworthy in the great achievements of educators everywhere during the nineteenth century. There is no desire to throw out everything 
and think that everything must be radically new. Rather, the goal is to investigate the inner forces ruling in human nature today so that we can take them into account in education and thus find a true place in society for the human being in body, soul and spirit. As we shall see in the course of these lectures, education has always been a concern of society and it remains so today. And it must also be a social concern in the future. In education, therefore, there must be an understanding of what society demands of any given era. First of all, I want to describe in three stages the development of education in the West. The best way to do this is to consider the educational ideals of the various ages, the ideals of those who wanted to rise to the highest level of human existence, a stage from which they could render the most useful service to humankind. Thus it will help to go back to the earliest of those ages that survive as cultural influences in the present time. Nobody today can dispute the living influence of the Greek civilization in all human aims and aspirations. So the fundamental question for educators is, quote, how did the Greeks try to raise human beings to the level of perfection, close quote. We must consider the progress of successive eras in relation to this process of perfection, the education of the human being. First, let's look at the Greek ideal for a teacher, that is, the ideal for those who wanted to develop to the highest stage of humanity, not only for their own sake, but also to be able to help others along the right path. The Greek ideal of education was the gymnast. Gymnasts were those who had completely harmonized their bodily nature with, to the extent considered necessary, the qualities of soul and spirit. Gymnasts were those who could express the divine beauty of the world through the beauty of their own bodies, and also bring the divine beauty of the world into bodily expression in the child. They were the ones who upheld Greek civilization. Through a feeling of modern superiority, it is easy to belittle the gymnast's manner of education based as it was on bodily nature. But this involves a complete misunderstanding of what it meant to be a gymnast in Greece. If we, nevertheless, continue to admire Greek civilization and consider it the highest ideal to be imbued with Greek culture, it will help to remember also that the Greeks were not concerned primarily with developing, in quotes, spirituality in human beings. Their only concern was to develop the human body so that, through the harmony of its parts and modes of activity, the body itself would blossom into a manifestation of divine beauty. The Greeks' expectation of the body was exactly what we expect of a plant. That is, if the root has been treated properly, it will blossom on its own under the influence of sunlight and warmth. In our devotion to Greek culture today, we must remember that the bearers of this culture were the gymnasts, those who had not taken the third step first, but the first step, 
the harmonization of bodily human nature. All the beauty, all the greatness, all the perfection of Greek culture was not sought directly. It was regarded as growing naturally out of the beauty and harmony of a powerful body by virtue of inner human nature and activity. Our understanding of Greek civilization, especially their education, will be out of balance unless our admiration for the spiritual greatness of Greece is linked to knowledge that gymnasts were the ideal of Greek education. As we follow the development of humanity, we come to a decisive moment in the transition from Greek to Roman culture. In Roman civilization, we see first the emergence of a cultivation of abstractions that led to the separation of spirit, soul, and body, and placed a special emphasis on this threefold division. We can see how the principle of beauty in the gymnastic education of Greece was in fact imitated by Roman culture, but now the education of body and soul became two separate areas. The Romans still considered it important to train the body, but gradually, almost imperceptibly, this fell to second place. Their attention was directed increasingly toward something they considered more important in human nature, the soul. The Greek training that was related to the ideal of the gymnast gradually changed in Roman culture into training the soul qualities. This continued through the Middle Ages, an epoch when soul qualities were considered higher than those of the body. Now another ideal of education arose from this Romanized human nature. Early in the Middle Ages, an educational ideal appeared for the highest classes, the fruit of Roman civilization. It was essentially a culture of the soul, insofar as soul reveals itself outwardly in the human being. Gymnasts were gradually superseded by another type of person. Today we no longer have a strong historical awareness of that change, but those who study the Middle Ages intimately will recognize the event. The ideal of education was no longer the gymnast, but the orator, whose main training was in speech, an essential quality of soul. The knowledge of how people can work through speech as orators was a product of Roman culture carried into the beginning of the Middle Ages. It represented a change from purely physical education to an education of the soul, which continued to train the body as a secondary activity. And because the Middle Ages made use of the orator to spread the spiritual life cultivated in monastic schools and elsewhere in medieval times, in the area of education, orators, though called by various names, assumed the place once held by Greek gymnasts. Thus, in reviewing the ideals that have been considered the highest expression of humanity, we see how humanity advances from the educational ideal of the gymnast to that of the orator. This affected the methods of education. The education of children was brought into line with what people thought of as the ideal of human perfection. And those who can observe historically will see that even modern educational practices, 
the ways that language and speech are taught to children are handed down from the Middle Ages, which held the orator as its educational ideal. Next came the middle of the Middle Ages, when there was a great swing toward honor and respect for the intellect. A new educational ideal of of human development arose, one that represents exactly the opposite of the Greek ideal. This ideal gave the highest position to the intellect and spiritual development. Those with knowledge became the ideal. Throughout the Middle Ages, those who could act through soul powers, those who could convince others, remained the ideal of education. Now the knower became the ideal. Just consider the earliest universities, the University of Paris, for example, during the Middle Ages. You can see that the ideal there was not the knower but the doer, the one who can be most convincing through speech, the most skillful in argument, the master of dialectic and the word, which now begins to assume the color of thought. We still find the orator as the ideal of education, although the rhetoric itself has become tinged with the hue of thought. Now with modern civilization... Another ideal arises for evolving humanity, an ideal that is again reflected in the education of children. Education, even in this age of materialism, is still under the influence of this ideal. Now, for the first time, the ideal of the doctor or professor arises. The doctor has become the ideal for the perfect human being. Thus we see three stages in human evolution, the gymnast, the orator, and the doctor. Gymnasts were those who could handle the human organism out of what they considered the divine order and activity in the cosmos. Gymnasts knew how to handle the soul only to the degree that it manifested physically in the body. A gymnast trains the body, and through it the soul and spirit to the heights of Greek civilization. The orator was concerned with the soul and attained a crown and glory as the speaker of soul matters, as a church orator. And finally, we see how the ability to act is no longer valued. Those who only know and no longer work with the soul's nature in its physical activity, but only what rules invisibly in one's inner being, became the ideal of the highest level of education. This, however, is reflected in the most elementary principles of education. It was the gymnasts in Greece who also educated children. Later, it was the orators who educated children. Finally, in more modern times, just as materialism was arising in civilization, it was the professors who educated children. Thus physical education developed into rhetorical soul education, and this in turn developed into professorial education. Modern education is the result of the doctoral ideal, and those who want to understand the deepest principles of modern education must carefully observe what was introduced through this doctoral ideal. Along with this, a new ideal has emerged to become more and more prominent today the ideal of the, in quotes, universal human. The doctoral education was being crammed even into very young children, 
since it was doctors who wrote the textbooks and invented the methods of education. Now there is a longing to educate the whole human being, the universal human. Those today who discern things from a basic elementary feeling for human nature want to have a say in matters of education. For inner reasons, the question of education today has become a problem of our time. We must keep this inner stream of human evolution in mind if we want to understand the present age, because any true development of education must do nothing less than supersede this, in quotes, professorial principle. If I were to briefly summarize one aspect of the goal of Waldorf education, I would say, of course, merely in a preliminary sense, that we are trying to turn this professorial education into an education of the whole human being. We cannot understand the essential nature of Greek education, which continues to develop even today, unless we look in the right light at the course of human evolution going back to the Greeks. Their civilization was really a continuation or offshoot of Eastern civilization. All that had developed over thousands of years in human evolution in Asia was finally expressed in Greece, especially, I believe, in Greek education. Then that decisive moment in evolution, the transition to Roman culture, occurred. Roman culture is the source of all that flowed into Western civilization later on, even America. We cannot understand, therefore, the essence of Greek education unless we have the correct concept of Eastern development as a whole. Those who stood by the cradle of the civilization out of which arose the wonderful Vedas and Vedanta would have considered it completely ridiculous that people would sit and study books to pass examinations hoping to attain the highest development of human nature. It would have made no sense to think that after years, if one is industrious, or months, if one is lazy, one could become a perfected human being by maltreating, training is not the right word, something vaguely called the human spirit, only to be asked how much one, in quotes, knows. We cannot understand the development of human civilization unless we occasionally pause to consider how the ideal of one era appears to another. What steps were taken by those of the ancient East who wished to attain the sublime culture offered in the previous age that had inspired the Vedas? What they practiced was basically a kind of physical education. If it was in their destiny they hoped to attain the crown of human life, the most sublime spirituality, through a cult of the body, one-sided though this might seem today. Thus, instead of reading books and maltreating an abstract, in quotes, spirit, an exceedingly delicate culture of the body was adopted as the highest educational method in the ancient East. For example, this refined physical education involved a specific and vigorous system of regulating the breath. When we breathe, as indeed we must if we are to get enough oxygen from minute to minute, the process is generally unconscious. We breathe unconsciously. The ancient East made this breathing process, which is essentially a bodily function, into a conscious process. 
They would breathe in, hold it, and breathe out, all according to a specific rule. While doing this, they arranged their bodies in a certain way. The legs and arms had to be held in certain positions. That is, the path of one's breath through the physical organism, when it reached the knee, for instance, had to turn in a horizontal direction. Those who reached for human perfection sat with their legs crossed beneath them. If they wished to experience spiritual revelation, they had to achieve it by training the body, which involved the human air processes, or, in any case, involved one's bodily nature. What is the basis of this kind of education? The flower and fruit of a plant exist in the root, and if the root receives proper care, both flower and fruit will develop properly with sunlight and warmth. Likewise, soul and spirit live in human bodily nature, the body created by God. If we take hold of the body's roots, knowing that divinity lives there, and develop them correctly, surrendering to the life that is freely developing, then the soul and spirit in those roots develop, as do the inner forces of a plant, which pour from the root and develop in the warmth of sunlight. To those of the ancient East, abstract development of spirit would have seemed no different than, say, hiding a plant from the sunlight, perhaps placing it in a cellar to grow under electric light, because one did not consider the free light of the sun good enough. The fact that those of the East looked only to bodily nature was rooted deeply in their whole view of humanity. Of course, this bodily development later became one-sided. It had already done so in the Hebrew culture, but that very one-sidedness shows us that they universally viewed body, soul, and spirit as one. Here on earth, between birth and death, we must look for soul and spirit in the body. It may come as a surprise to look at ancient Eastern spirituality in this light. But when we study the true course of human evolution, we find that the highest attainments of civilization were achieved in times when people could still perceive soul and spirit completely within the body. This was a very significant development for the core being of human civilization. Why were those of the East justified in striving for spirit through methods based on the physical human body. For it must be remembered that their main concern was a quest for spirit. They were justified because their philosophy opened their eyes not just to the earthly, but also to the supra-sensory world. They knew that if you consider the soul and spirit on earth to be independent, it is like seeing them uh, forgive this rather trivial analogy, as a, in quotes, plucked hen, an incomplete hen. Our idea of soul and spirit would have seemed analogous to a hen with its feathers plucked, for they knew soul and spirit. They knew the reality of what we seek in other worlds. They had a concrete supra-sensory perception of it. They considered it proper to look for the human being through physical bodily revelation, because their basic conviction was that in other worlds the plucked hen, the naked soul, is again endowed with spiritual, in quotes, 
feathers once it reaches the proper place. It was the very spirituality of their worldview that when considering human evolution on earth prompted those of the East to bear in mind that resting within the physical body in a most wonderful way, soul and spirit is within the body when we are born as purely physical beings. They knew that when our physicality is handled in a truly spiritual way, soul and spirit reveals itself. This was the keynote of their education, including that of the sages of the East. It was a belief that was handed down to Greek culture, an offshoot of Eastern civilization. Now we understand why the Greeks who brought the Eastern view to its ultimate expression adopted, even for the young, their own way of training human beings. It was the result of Eastern influence. Attention to bodily nature in Greek, in Greek civilization simply represents what they became by colonizing the East and by what they received from Egypt. This is how they derived their whole mode of existence. When we look at the Greek arenas in which gymnasts worked, in their activities we see a continuation of the development that the East worked toward from a deeply spiritual view as the being who would reach the highest ideal of human perfection on earth. Those of the East would have never considered a lopsided development of soul or spirit to be the ideal of human perfection. The education that has become the ideal of later times would have appeared to deaden what the gods had given to humanity for life on earth, and basically this was also the view of the Greeks. It is strange to realize how Greek spiritual culture, which we still think of as so sublime, was regarded then by non-Greeks. A traditional anecdote tells us that a barbarian prince once went to Greece, visited the places of education, and spoke with one of the most famous gymnasts. The barbarian prince said, quote, I fail to understand your ridiculous practices. First you rub these young men with oil, a symbol of peace, then you throw sand over them as if preparing them for a peaceful ceremony, and then they begin to rush around as though insane, seizing and springing at one another. One knocks the other down or hits him on the chin so hard that his shoulders have to be shaken to prevent him from suffocating. I do not understand such a performance, and it is certainly of no use to anyone. Quote. In spite of this, however, the spiritual glory of Greece derived from what the prince believed to be such barbarism. The gymnast only smiled at the barbarian, who did not understand how the body must be trained in order to manifest the spirit. Similarly, if those Greeks could see our usual methods of education, which date from earlier times, which speak abstractly of soul and spirit, they would laugh at the barbarism that has developed since the days of Greece. They would say, quote, this is like a plucked hen. You have taken away the feathers. Close quote. The Greeks would have considered it barbaric that children do not wrestle and attack one another. But the barbarian prince saw no meaning or purpose in Greek education. By studying human evolution and by observing what was valued in other eras, we can acquire a basis on which to value things in our own time. Now, let us turn to the places where the Greek gymnasts taught the youths 
entrusted to them in the seventh year of life. Of course, what we find there differs essentially from, say, the 19th century national educational ideal. What I have to say here does not hold true for any particular nation, but for all civilized nations. When we turn to a place in Greece, where young people were educated from the seventh year of life on, what we see, if properly imbued with modern impulses, affords us a real foundation for understanding what we need in education today. They were trained, parenthesis here, trained is used in its highest sense, close parenthesis, both in an orchestric way and in a palestric way. Orchestric, to the outer eye, was an entirely physical exercise, a kind of concerted dance, but arranged in a very special and complex way. The children learned to move in a definite form according to measure, beat, and rhythm, completely in keeping with a certain formative principle of music. The children, moving together in this choral dance, felt a kind of inner soul warmth pouring through and coordinating their limbs. This dance was experienced by spectators as a beautifully composed musical dance. The whole event revealed the beauty of the Godhead and that beauty within human beings. Every experience of this orchestric movement was felt and sensed inwardly, and through this it was transformed from a physical process into an expression of soul, inspiring the hand to play the zither, inspiring the word to become song. To understand singing and playing a zither in ancient Greece, we must see that they blossom from the choral dance. Out of what they experienced in dance, people were inspired to make the strings vibrate, so that they could hear the sound arising from the choral dance. From their own movement they experienced something that poured into their words, and their words became song. Gymnastic and musical culture predominated in Greek education in the arenas, but the musical and soul qualities they acquired arose from the outer physical movements performed in wonderful, harmonious form in the arena dances. Today, if we directly perceive the meaning of those orderly movements in a Greek arena, which could not be understood by the barbarian prince, one finds that all the forms of an individual's movements were wonderfully arranged, so that the most immediate result was not the musical element I described, but something else. If we study the measure and the rhythm that were mysteriously interwoven into the orchestric dance, we find that nothing could have been more healing to the breathing and the blood circulation than these exercises in the Greek choral dances. When do we breathe in the best way? How can we cause our blood to move properly through our breathing? The answer is that children must perform dance-like movements from their seventh year on. Then, as the Greek said, the children's breathing and blood circulation depend not on decadence but on healing. The whole goal of orchestric dancing was to express the breathing and blood circulation in human beings in the most perfected way. They believe that when the blood is circulating properly, it works right into the fingertips, and people will instinctively strike the strings of a zither or lute in the right way. This was the flower of the blood circulation. The human rhythmic system was kindled correctly 
through the choral dance. As a result, it was expected that a musical spiritual quality would develop in the playing, because it was known that when a person performs the corresponding movements of a choral dance, the breathing becomes inspired so that it functions naturally in a spiritual way. The final result is that the breath will overflow into outer expression through the larynx and related organs. It was understood that the healing effects of choral dancing on one's breathing would lead to singing. Thus the crowning climax, playing music and singing, was drawn from the healthy organism trained in the right way through choral dance. Physical nature, soul and spirit were seen to be united inwardly, an inner human wholeness. This was the essential spirit of Greek education. Now, let us consider what was developed in palestric exercise, which is named for the places of education in Greece, since such exercises were the common property of all educated people. What was studied in those forms, in which wrestling was evolved, for instance? We see that the system existed to develop two human qualities. Volition, stimulated by bodily movement, grew strong and forceful in two directions. All palestric movement in wrestling was intended to bring suppleness, skill and purposeful flexibility into the wrestler's limbs. This system of human movement was harmonized so that the various parts worked together properly and whatever the soul mood, one could move appropriately and with skill, controlling the limbs from within. Rounding movements into purposeful life was one side of palestric exercise. The other side was the, in quotes, radial of the motion, in which force must flow into the movement. Skill on the one side, force on the other. On one side the power to hold out and overcome opposing forces, to be strong in order to experience the world. Skill, proficiency and harmony of various parts of the body along with the development of power, give the ability to freely radiate and express one's being everywhere in the world. They maintained that when people harmonized their system of movement through palestric exercises, they enter a true relationship with the cosmos. The arms, the legs and the breathing developed by palestric exercises were given over to human activities in the world. It was known that when the arm is developed properly through palestric exercise, it connects with the flow of cosmic forces that then flow to the brain and from the cosmos reveal the great ideas to humankind. They did not expect the musical element to arise from special musical training. It simply united, usually around the age of twenty, with what was drawn from breathing and the blood circulation. Likewise, what had to be learned as mathematics or geometry, for example, united with the physical education in palestric exercise. It was known that geometry is inspired by proper movements of the arms. Today, people do not learn of such things from history. They have been forgotten. What I have said, however, is the truth, and it justifies the Greeks in having placed the gymnasts in charge of their educational institutions. 
the gymnasts succeeded most in the spiritual development of the Greeks by giving them freedom. They did not fill their brains or try to create walking encyclopedias. They placed the appropriate human organs into the cosmos in the right way. People thus became receptive to the spiritual world. As in the East, Greek gymnasts were convinced that this happened, but in a later form. By giving you an introductory description of an ancient method of education, what I have really done today is to present you with a question. I have done this because we must probe very deeply to discover the true principles of education today. It is absolutely necessary to get to the bottom of human evolution in order to discover the right way to form questions that will help us answer the question of educational methods today. Therefore, I want to present you with one aspect of the subject we are considering. As we go along, the lectures are meant to provide a more detailed answer suited to the needs of today, an answer to the question raised today, which will be further developed tomorrow. Our method of study must therefore be the result of truly understanding the great question of education raised by the evolutionary course of humanity. We must then move on to answers that may be given by understanding the nature and constitution of the human being at the present time. The end of Lecture 2